Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Hi Steve, how are you? Hi Russell, very well thank you and looking forward to this podcast today. Fantastic. Well, this podcast is part of a series of episodes exploring subject-specific material. And today we're looking at one of my absolute favourite subjects, history. We're going to be having a particular focus today on diversity within history. And we're joined by two experts in this field, Karen Dool and Paul Bracey, who both do a lot of work for the Historical Association, which I've recently joined and would highly recommend. Karen is a principal lecturer in history education at Roehampton University, where I did my degree, actually. And Paul is a senior lecturer in teacher education at Northampton University. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Hi, both. To start off today, could we ask for each of you to briefly tell us about where your interest in history comes from and why you have an interest in diversity in particular? I'm thinking if we start with Paul and then go to Karen. Fine. Well, actually, interest in history goes back, I can't remember when it started, really, but uh, stories, films on the TV, site visits. I was born in a, a town called Kings Lynn, which uh, got medieval origins. I've, I've been surrounded by history, really, throughout my life. So, particularly today, though, the, the idea we're looking at diversity in history, um, again, that's a, an aspect of history that actually I can really trace back to my early years as well in that uh, growing up at times where you saw things like uh, racism in the sort of 60s, 70s, issues in sort of uh, conflict in Northern Ireland, all, all those, the interest in those sort of things, maybe sort of think, start to think about how do people relate to each other, how to sort of look at the issues in a, in a past context. And really I thought about that throughout my teaching career and actually it's an important part of my work with students now in terms of actually not so much look at the past to deal with current problems but actually getting a broader understanding of the past so that we can actually relate issues today in their their sort of historical context. Thank you and Karen? I think I'd have to say pretty much the same as Paul in that I can't remember when I wasn't interested in history and I think that idea of diversity is something that I came to particularly around that time when I was going into teaching myself And I started off in London uh, working for something called uh, CUES, the Centre for Urban Education Studies. And it was very much about working with children in multiracial um, schools and recognising and responding to their own histories and backgrounds and bringing that into what you were doing. So my teaching career has always had that involvement with the idea of a multiplicity of voices. That takes us on really nicely to just that question of what do we mean by diversity in history? Would you each say something on that? What do we mean by diversity in history and why is this an important issue to discuss, do you think? Paul, we'll come back to you. Okay, well, I think as a starting point, let's just start with the national curriculum and just see what that says. And uh, again, just to the purpose there, it says, just to quote you, it says, looks at diversity of societies, relationships between different groups, as a purpose for studying history. That's it. Apart from the concept, similarity and difference, it's very, very vague. At Key Stage 1, you've got a couple of examples, Rosa Parks and Mary Seacole, but that's it. It doesn't really take us very far. And uh, it sort of, if you like, gives us a broad indication of what we might do with diversity. When it gets to the implication of it, it, we're, we're not going very far there. So 
we've really got to decide what we mean. And perhaps if I digress a bit to indicate what it's not, imagine you've gone out to the day to a local national trust or under heritage property and they've got a role play. Near to where I live, there's uh, Kenilworth Castle. You may have seen a role play with Elizabeth I coming out there with people watching, seeing the displays. And what you're getting is a, a fabulous day out. You're getting an impression of the past that actually looks at the rich, the powerful, and perhaps the, the sort of things that you're going to see plays on TV, etc. about. And it's a very much a stereotypical image. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's any perception of the past or that particular period you've got, and again, if I get think of other periods, it could be the Vikings, if you think of Vikings as warriors, you've got a partial perspective of the past. So what's diversity? Well, diversity is being aware of that and relating to its wider context. So to understand the period, you've got to go beyond those stereotypical images. And you've got to really see different people's lives. You're going to see different people's lives in different parts of the world to start with as a broader context is one thing. But really what you've got to look at, stuff is not just the, the wealthy and the powerful, but you've got to just look at ordinary people, different classes of people where appropriate different ethnicities, going back to Elizabethan times, there were black people, for example, in, in, in Britain, uh, different religions, people's experiences in different localities, town, country, etc. And of course, abilities, disabilities, you know, different, different experiences of people, depending on their particular context. Now, you can't cover everything, but you've got to get a basis for understanding that there are many experiences to look at. If you're going to understand a period in the past, you can't just focus on a very narrow uh, range of experiences of, say, as I said, like the rich and powerful. If you do, children's perceptions of the past will be equally narrow and their background to understand the, the present will be equally uh, narrowly defined. So it's that broad perspective of understanding that our past is broadly based and inclusive. Thank you. That's really helpful. And, and over to you, Karin. What does diversity mean to you? Um, I'm coming to it from a similar perspective, I think. Um, I'm looking at the idea of history and memory that is linked into our sense of self, of who we are as individuals. And that specific identity that we have is shaped by um, our experiences and all those experiences that make us human. We all start off our earliest history. The earliest history we encounter is that of our own personal families. What was I like when I was little, mummy? What, what, why do I call granddad this name rather than that name? And then we move out from that personal identity into a community identity. Uh, I went to college at Roehampton. Hurrah, you have a, a, a shared uh, link with me. And then we move that ever out, or it may be, it might be linked to a geographical one. My husband is Scottish. He wears a skirt. I mean, a kilt, sorry, kilt, kilt. <laughs> uh, and he drinks whiskey and, you know, all the rest of that. Uh, there's stereotypical things that, that uh, Paul was just talking about. But because of this, and then that moves out to nations and, and into that wider shared community that we, an identity that we have as part of humanity. But we should be aware of different experiences and identities. Uh, they're extremely powerful. The first thing any dictator will do is to try to take away cultural 
backgrounds, languages, histories, or change the history to fit in with their own narrative, because it's a really powerful tool. And we see this, this sense of, of who we are rising up all over in different ways. So because of that, it's important for us as, as people teaching history that we recognize those different identities and share those different identities. What we don't want to do is to give children the impression that this is history, but it's not their history. They are not in that picture. They're not part of that picture. And so we need to make sure that we're careful about how we do that. We, of course, we need to recognise some of the different voices that have shaped and contributed to our history. And alongside the history of the place where children are growing up, they need to know how Britain came to be. But what we select and, and how we evaluate and how we make sense of that is what's so important in history, rather than just presenting, as Paul suggested, this this. this neat tidy little view of the past mm. history isn't neat and it isn't tidy um, and it's a much bigger picture than we often look at so the history that we encountered as children we can't just give it out again we have to reevaluate it and we have to reconsider it because the accepted view might have become contested since then or there might have been changes what we need to do is to allow children to find some resonance in what we're talking about, to see that what we're talking about in some way speaks to them as well as to us. We're all fascinated about our own past. Family mm. history is a big thing to do, you know, likewise our own place. If I was to give you all a map or an aerial photo, you'd be there looking for your house. Mm. And we do the same with our high street. Oh, we know what that is. That's our place and this is our past. So certainly we can use that and we should be allowing children to find a connection with the past, with, with who they are, because the more diverse our own history subject knowledge is and those of the children, the better choices we can make in, in understanding what our past is all about. Mm. And so it is very much about a multiplicity of voices, a, a whole series of different um, multitude of, of different narratives coming from different angles, as Paul said, ethnicity, gender, disability, sexuality, class, all of those things have different perspectives. And I, I would 100% agree with Paul, it's so, so vast, we can't do everything. So we have to think about how we're going to select Mm. Um, what we do and what is appropriate and how we can make it useful for the children that we're working with. Thank you. I think between you, you've given the most wonderful explanation mm. of, of the importance of diversity there. And I have to say, yeah. what you talked about at the end there, Karin, around making those choices, I've found that a real, um, quite a heavy weight, actually, as, as someone that's been <laughs> quite um, a key part of curriculum design in my school. And I think what I've appreciated with this rather not so lovely circumstance that we're in at the moment and when we had lockdown and whatnot that it actually gave me some headspace to look at this in a bit more depth and what yeah. I realized is that completely unconsciously I had bias about the things that I was naturally drawn to or the sorts of experiences yeah. I was naturally drawn to and it's not uh, when we talk about diversity what we're not trying to do is condemn people for getting things wrong we're saying just let's stop and look at it a bit more yeah. 
I think that's beautifully explained, actually. Um, can we stay on the topic of diversity, where it's sometimes mm -hmm. overlooked, actually? And it'd be quite interesting if we could have some examples of where diversity is overlooked within history. Well, areas where it's overlooked, I would say the obvious ones is uh, ethnicity, really. I mean, the whole mm -hmm. issue at the moment with the Black Lives Matter movement is is the idea that the experiences of black communities is typically either overlooked or inappropriately developed. And again, there's mm. massive scope for a lot of schools to be developing that, 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 that in, in their curricula. Another aspect of diversity I'd say that needs to be considered is uh, the, again, the National Critical Talks, the, uh, these islands we live in. You know, the idea of not just looking at, say, England, you know, what's the dis what's what's happening in the, the main part of these islands, the sort of Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and also the, the smaller islands, the Orkneys, etc., where we or, or, or beyond that sense of a, a breadth of diversity experience that goes beyond the obvious. Women's history again is is another area that needs to be the, the experiences of, of women, etc., and again, sexuality is, a, is another issue. That all of those areas are uh, areas that are underlooked. And last but not least, of course. The idea of disability is, mm. is, is something that many of us we can consider. You know, if you look back to times in the past, you know, sort of how people of different abilities or disabilities cope with situations, post-war circumstances, for example, uh, again, uh, affecting sort of soldiers, etc. Again, all of these things or illness, etc. How people cope with these different perspectives that uh, gives us a sense, a broader sense of people's lives in their entirety so there are many many gaps and we'll, ne we'll never cover all of them but again it's our, our duty as much as anything to to think of ways in which we can explore them and once again go back to this idea that there's always more to learn absolutely karen so the first thing we need to think about is expanding our own knowledge of these different areas because it's all very well saying oh well you know black lives matter but what sort of black history are we looking at? Is it history that is most applicable to the children's lives here? Because the black British experience is different to the black American experience. So do they know about black British as well as black American? I think also thinking about why we have selected somebody to look at. Is it good enough just to pick them for their sexuality or the colour of the skin, or are we looking for them to have been significant in their own right? You know, mm. do we look at Alan Turing because he was a mathematician and a code breaker, or because he was gay? Or do we look at both of those aspects of his life because they both contribute to what happened to him? Likewise, someone like Frida Kahlo, who was um, disabled, are we looking at her as a disabled artist or a woman artist uh, or her ethnicity in relation to her art or are we just looking at her as an artist but having a, a, a broad bank of people that we can pull in and mm -hmm. use in different points I think is is what's key potentially here and so I think um, also I like the point that that uh, Paul was making about um, disability I think it is a key one but we should remember mental disability as well when we're thinking it's you know we often think physical disability don't we but it's actually also about how people struggled 
with difficult ideas or, you know, the, those that were coming back shell-shocked from World War One. you know, those sorts of things as well. Uh, and I know that, that those that suffer from mental um, health will say we feel as if we're hidden. What we're doing here is trying to bring out some of those hidden histories, to uncover some different stories. Hmm. It's, it's really interesting because what you've both spoken about there in the examples you've given sort of highlights just how important the teacher's own subject knowledge is. And if we have experienced an education that perhaps wasn't diverse ourselves, we might actually just realise we don't know this stuff. So, hmm. you know, if, if I wanted to better my, my subject knowledge in terms of these diverse um, sort of perspectives throughout history, what advice would you give to actually doing that? One of the things you could do will be to go back to last year's summer resource on the, on the <laughs> History Association, uh, which Paul and I were involved in writing last year. And in that, we've given a whole uh, range of places where you can find information. And I think once you start looking, you will see that it, that it is all around. It is important to, to check and make sure that you are accurate when I first started teaching, one of the stories that I was really interested in is the story of Charles Drew. Do you, do you know who Charles Drew was? No. Okay, so Charles Drew. Do you know Paul? Um, I'm listening. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Charles Drew was, was an American um, uh, doctor. And one of the things that he discovered was that you, and he was working over here in Britain, at this point so we're looking at the second world war period uh, he started off his research in america but uh as the second world war, war happens he, he moves over to uh, britain and is doing some of his work here as well and he discovers how to store platelets so that you can extend the life of blood transfusions you can imagine what a contribution that was to things like, like to the D-Day landings and things like that. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people that owe their lives to Charles Drew and this discovery that allowed you to store blood plasma to, to, to be able to, to, to do blood banks. Um, so the story is that um, Charles Drew was driving in uh, Tuscadi, near Tuscadi, I think Alabama, I think it is, and he was in a car accident um, and was taken to the local hospital. But we're talking Alabama here in the 1940s, 50s, and it's, an, it's a white hospital. And so the story that, that I had and that I shared to students when I was first starting was that he died um, from blood loss because they wouldn't treat him in this white hospital. But that's not actually true. That isn't what happened. He, he was in a car crash. He was extremely badly injured. He did die, but not because he wasn't treated in the hospital. Um, they did treat him, and then they, he suffered a nearly severed leg, chest injuries, broken neck, brain damage, blood flow to the heart. And they went to work immediately on him, but he couldn't be saved. And the, the family wrote letters to the physicians thanking them for their efforts. So this was a story that was going around, and, and a good one. I mean, it's a great story, isn't it? You know, I mean, the man that discovers blood banks dies because, you know, they, they won't, they won't um, give it. But uh, it's not in, entirely true. So accuracy is really important. Mm -hmm. If you find a good story, check it, and check it with reputable 
websites that I checked this with the Jim Crow Museum. Um, so I know that, that, that that's right. Uh, what I'd also like to do is I'd like to uh, just talk Key Stage 1 for a moment mm. as well, because I think that diversity is something that we can approach in Key Stage 1 too. There's just such a fabulous wealth of picture books of all sorts of different types of people there. I mean, I have, for example, four different picture books on Mary Anning. Mm, I'm four so glad you working class that. girl, four different versions of her story, mm. um, which is a great one for allowing children to look at representation. Mm. How do we decide which bits of her story to tell? Mm. How do we decide what she looks like? Mm. How do we? How do these stories compare in what they put in and in, in what they've left out? Not all of them say she was struck by lightning as a baby. Yeah. Some of them put it in, some of them don't. You know, yeah. so it's quite. We can actually use them quite effectively with children. Um, the two I'd like to highlight to you are Nobody Owns the Sky, which is the story of Bessie Coleman, brave Bessie Coleman, and uh, the dazzling Josephine Baker. Both 1920s, so the first thing that you ought to be doing if you're working with children with this is to set the context of it, to put it, as Paul suggests, into that historical place. Where does this, this come? We're looking at the 1920s, so this is post-First World War, all that total exuberance and over-the-top element. It's te lots of technological advances. Hmm. All sorts of things come out in the 1920s. Uh, Bird's eye fish fingers for a start. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Bird's eye actually designs the fish fingers, but all sorts of other things as well. A new relationship between the USA and Europe. We're much closer together and people have traveled and they're aware of what's going on in America, poor people as well as just the rich. And so you've got a timeline of what's going on, but where these two ladies are. Um, so looking at them is the same difference. Bessie Coleman, um, she grows up um, again in the south of America and she dreams about flying. She wants to be a, mm. an aviatrix. What a good word for a key stage one. Maybe. <laughs> and of course, nobody wants to uh, allow her to do that. Now the picture book is a great one. Nobody owes the skies because it's in verse. So it reads really well. Bessie worked hard at school and she dreamed about flight. People said she was crazy. It wouldn't be right. You're a girl, not a man, and you're not even white. But did she stop dreaming? Not quite. Um, and so she goes to Chicago uh, and she works in a nail shop. Bessie manicured nails while the barber cut hair and she dreamed about flying but didn't know where. And then some, one day someone said, fly in France. They won't care it, that you're black and a woman. So Bessie went there. She was young, tough and smart and she had courage to spare and she took like a hawk to the air. So she's the first black woman to get her pilot's license, the first African-American to get her pilot's license. Um, she comes back, she puts on air shows. She's really keen on education and she's promoting education and she's also promoting civil rights. She won't um, perform if the, the audience is segregated, she refuses to go on. They must allow oh. everybody to go in through the same gate to watch her air shows. So she loops the loop um, and she's trying to raise money to open a school for flyers in America so that flyers will not have to go to France, which is what she has to do. She has to go all the way to France. She has to learn French. She has to save up the money to get herself there. She has to save up the money to keep herself going while she is there. 
and she wants to be able to do that in America. But sadly, Bessie's life was not long. But she flew far and wide. In Jacksonville, Florida, everyone cried because Bessie's plane failed and she fell and she died. Farewell to brave Bessie, they sighed. Other young men and women soon wanted to fly and the people said, why don't we give it a try? The sky is still big and the sky is still high, but you're bound to get there by and by. Just remember the words till the day you die. Nobody owns the sky. She also said, I never took no for an answer, which is a great motto for children. And she, um, although she died, other people took up her idea. And the school that eventually grows out of, of her idea trains the Tuskegee Airmen that take part in the Second World War later on. So there are lots of sort of links. Links with Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker um, mm. comes over to, um, to France um, as an entertainer. She, um, she starts off in a black musical called Shuffle Along. It's the first black musical to play in white theatres. It's hugely, hugely popular. It causes traffic jams around the block as people try to get in. And uh, Josephine is part of the chorus line. In 1921, the crew of Shuffle Along, uh, the cast, sorry, of Shuffle Along, give Bessie Coleman a silver loving cup in recognition of what she's achieved, having gained her licence. And Josephine Baker is one of the uh, cast at that point. So there, there's a, a, a nice link with them. I think if you're using this with children, you could have images of these two ladies in their iconic um, dress. You may want to be careful with the Josephine Baker one because her iconic dress is a banana skirt, a skirt made of bananas. So I'm not sure that that would be seen as something that could be seen as something that might cause offence. Mm. So you might want to be careful about the picture that you're choosing. But looking at what, what clothes are they, they trying, what are they trying to say with these clothes? What do they tell us about who these people are and what they're trying to do? And one of the other things that I've done when I've used this with children is to have, at the end of it, after we've done a lot of talking about who they are and, and what they are, is to put a picture of the woman up onto a big picture onto a thing and then get the children to tell you things about it what was good what was bad you know so it was really sad because she died and and she she fell out of her plane and died and that was really sad and then someone will say yeah but she got her dream she she flew she was able to to be a flyer and so that was really good so that marrying up of the children's responses to this is a great one if we think about how they've been memorialized Memorials are a big thing at the moment, aren't they? Mm. Both of them have had postage stamps. Uh, both of them have had Google Doodles. Now, mm. I, I really love Google Doodles. Mm -mm. I think they're great. You can go to the archive and you can put in somebody's name and find out whether they've been googly doodled. But you could also get children to create their own ones and send them in. You can send them to Google Doodle archives. And, and you know, if they're good enough, they'll, 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 they'll put them up. And I think you can also use the women's own writing as well. So we can, use, we can use film of them, we can use images of them, and then there are their own words. So um, Bessie says, the air is the only place that is free from prejudice. And Josephine Baker, all my life I have maintained that people of the world can learn to live together in peace if they are not brought up in prejudice. Mm. So you've got a couple of really interesting, but Josephine Baker goes on, 
to she has a long life she dies in the 1960s she takes part in the march to washington with martin luther mm. king she speaks there she's a civil activist all her life she also wouldn't play to segregated audiences and she is a, she works as a spy in Vichy France as well, and is part of the Free French uh, Aviators uh, Women's Air Force as well. So, Gosh. two lovely ladies that mm. you can look at. Wakey Stage One through the entry into picture books. Thank you. So. They're they're wonderful examples. And I was just thinking as you were talking about Betty there about um, like Amelia Earhart, who is so yeah. often. Sort of studied, and so she should be. What an incredible life! Um, and, and 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 you know, we study her in year two. Um, and we look at sort of significant women in American history, and we look a bit at Rosa Parks, sort of as a as another figure. But actually, what a shame not to mention Betty yeah. Coleman while you're mentioning Amelia Earhart, and and to have that discussion on or Harriet Quimby, mm-hmm. first woman to fly across the Channel mm. in uh, nineteen. Is she? You can see. Um, film of her plane it's basically a chair um wings and uh, a propeller that's it and she she's wearing two sets of underwear um her purple satin flying suit because you've got to look <laughs> cheap when you're going um an overcoat and she's got hot water bottles strapped to her waist <laughs> and she goes from dover across to france but she lands on the day that the news of the disaster of Titanic reaches Britain. So we don't know really about her achievement because she just landed on the wrong day. Yeah, yeah, Um, overshadowed by... Paul, was there anything you wanted to come back on there before we we move on? I'd like to. What I'd like to, if it's okay with you, we've got lots of examples in our resource that we created last year. Yeah. And rather than say, giving you lots lots of examples, what I'd like to just pick on a couple, but look at a teaching approach. Is that okay with you? Yeah, mm. please. Right. Now, what I would say is the key stage one, I'd like go, to go back to this idea of not being tokenistic, but actually using it to, to support diversity. At key stage one, you've got this idea when you're looking at individuals, like those that Darren's just mentioned, uh, you've got, you're expected to relate them to their wider historical context, the period in which they lived. So if they're significant, they're unusual. And I think that's something you can draw out with the children. Uh, I take another person, for example, like Walter Tull, the the footballer who was, um, you know, sort of uh, played for Spurs um, and eventually came to Northampton. He was black. He he was born in a, 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 a in poverty and raised up in an orphanage, but he he achieved a great a great amount as a footballer. He eventually became, went to fight World War One and then was killed a, 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 in battle. Now, in terms of his life. Again, you've got somebody who's, again, exceptional. He's the first black officer in the, in the British Army. He's exceptional. So, again, what the idea is, is to, to actually celebrate that, you know, to say, well, how typical was he of, of people from our locality? Well, he wasn't because he did something different. But he wasn't the only black person who was in the war or the only person with different, different ethnicity in the war. He wasn't the only person involved. There's a, there's a role of women in World War One as well. So it's that idea of opening it it out the, the this case study if we move on to when children are getting older i think we could we can actually make this a focus for um say inquiries when you're planning schemes of work and i would say if you're looking at a scheme so always start off clearly with your, your key question 
but something that actually encourages them to go beyond what they're looking at. Now, if I go back to that story I said about Elizabeth's visit to Penworth, uh, a scheme title titled something like Elizabethan Times or Banquets and Fun is the sort of thing that you'd get if you're looking at sort of popular impressions of the period, whether you go to Stratford, for example, or, or what have you. Again, that's a starting point that many people would see at a, at a popular level. What you want to do is unpick that. So you could start with that sort of image, that key question, start with the impression of, say, the Queen's Court at the beginning of the, of the topic, and then progressively look at different aspects of life in that period, and then go back to your original question, say, well, how well is that sum up the period? Mm. And I think that gives you a framework for planning any unit of work. Now, I've got an example here. We move forward to the Blitz. I'm just going to say, go through ways in which that could be unpicked in this sort of approach. So you could have a, a title, for example, uh, the Blitz. All we need to know about World War Two would be the key questions. There's a, uh, a, a scheme that I've created for the Historical Association around this. And you've got a series of inquiries for which you could open this out. The first inquiry was how significant were the Blitz. It's the first year of the war. Give plenty of images, get the children to explore that as an entity itself. It's part of our national myth very much, uh, the, the idea of people pulling together and all of that sort of thing. But again, opportunities to look at that. Of course, you don't stop there. You then say, well, World War II, whose war? And of course, the next stage is actually it took part in different parts of the world. You could compare the Blitz with what was happening at bombing raids in Dresden, uh, Japan, etc. Uh, what was happening in, in Russia at Stalingrad, for images there to show it wasn't just this country. People in different parts of the world were actually experiencing uh, uh, war in a, in, a, in, a, in a dreadful sense. And of course, at the same time, there are different people involved in the war. So you, you look at different men, women, etc. in this country, but also people from the empire. You know, there are resources for places the Imperial War Museum, for example, with posters of, uh, and films connected with contribution of people from different parts of the world. The next inquiry could be focusing on locality. It's a fabulous resource produced locally in my locality by for the Northamptonshire Black History Association, where we've got a resource there looks at one family, the Salem family. And the father came from India in about 1919, but the whole family there, it was based on an oral testimony. The, the lad's uh, sister was in the land army. His father was uh, in a munitions factory his brother and uncle were in the army and one was in the, in, in the Eighth Army. So what you're getting is a family with many, many different contributions to the war. Once again, is how typical. Your next investigation is to look at other family histories in the area to say how typical they were. And of course, it leads into many, many topics, whether it's uh, women or men during the war. So it's that outward-looking perspective that I mentioned earlier. Another inquiry could be Evacuee experiences, another typical image you get of the war. But again, there are many evacuee experiences. So you could start with one, compare them with others. Because not every child was an evacuee. So you get case studies of children who were not evacuees. What was their experiences, what their experiences like, whether in towns or, 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 or the countryside. And last but not least, compare them with, say, the kinder transport, the evacuee children who came to escape from uh, Nazi Europe. Uh, once again, they had a, a, a range of experiences. So, again, you get a sense of this idea of childhood. Another experience could be how significant was the role of women in war. 
in the war. Again, this was a major time for women to be involved in different parts of, of the, the nation's work, whether it's uh, in, in the services or munitions factory or what or land army, etc. There are lots of opportunities to explore diversity of women's experiences, but of course it has its part in the, the broader history of uh, development in terms of changing role and, and, and position of women over time, which you, you could look at. And uh, last but not least, men's experiences. You know, a question like, what did men do in the war? Did they all have to fight? The image we get from, say, war films, etc., is, is of a certain experience of war. But of course, men's experience uh, varied. You've got the obvious extreme with the, the dad's army, the, the home guard, but you've got many munitions factories. You've got the Bevin boys. You've got whole ranges of different experiences of men. Again, what you do here is building up each key question in the scheme is opening the children out to explore different experiences. The second example I'm going to give is the idea of migration and people who've come to Britain, which is something you can develop in either key stages. Key stage one or two, your starting point could be a local study looking at people who've come to this country from our locality, looking at their past histories. And at key stage one, it could be just a history with a living memory. At key stage two, it could be a starting point to looking at more broadly other people who've come to this country in the past. That's one approach. A second approach is to really relate the topics that we, we have to cover from prehistoric times, right through the Romans, the Saxons and Vikings. You could compare their contributions to or their impact on the country, but then compare them with people who've come since 1066. For example, obviously you've got the Normans, you've got Jewish migrants who came in the Middle Ages and again at various times in the past. In the late 19th century, a, a number of refugees came. Again, you've got the kinder transport just before the war. You've got Irish migrants who've come from Saxon times, you know, sort of bringing Christianity to start with, often for work during the, again, the 19th century, the, the famine, and again, back to work, etc. Work opportunities very often or in the 20th century. You've got religious refugees like the Huguenots in the 16th century. You've got black settlers coming at different times in the past. And again, people from, from Europe, either during the war or in the post-war period. There are many, many different groups who come. And what you can do is compare their experiences with those earlier experiences like the Romans, Vikings uh, and, and Saxons. Thank you. There's some really helpful uh, piece of advice there around around how you might structure a unit or, or, or teach teach diversity. Go on, um, Karen. What did you want yeah, to say? Yeah, can I just say it as well? I think one of the points that Paul brought out, which is a really useful one when we're looking at history, is um, and it related to the family that you were talking about, Paul. I think mm. it's one of the things we want children to understand is that people in the past were not so very different from ourselves. Their experiences were different because their technology was different. But the actual people themselves react very much as we do now. Um, and I think if we can individualise history for children so that there's somebody that they can put into that place and think about what their experiences were like, then it's easier for them to talk about a named person, albeit 
it could be somebody that you you've created a character that you've created or it could be somebody that that was real one like the, the family in in paul's um northamptonshire history but it, it enables children to actually link more closely with with those children so i mean one of the ones i like to do for the romans is to take some of those characters so uh, we know that there was a uh, potter who had just opened his pottery just before Boudicca decides to destroy London um, and everything is completely destroyed so he's imported these wonderful or hideous depending on your taste um, green pottery ware that's no it's it's gone out of fashion in the rest of the empire but it's still hanging on in frontier Britain so this is this brilliant new stuff that he's got which is subsequently discovered burnt to ashes now the the point i think that, that paul was making in, in putting it into the wider context or, or, or getting them to think about what would i have done in that position so if i'd been the potter whoever he is give him a name and Suetonus appears and says okay sorry london you're going to have to go now either either you come with me those that you can get out come with me the rest of you i'm afraid Boudicca's on her way with her horde you're liable to be completely destroyed what do you do you've just opened you've got this really nice little thing in one Pulteney street and you've got all this wonderful stuff he, he clearly didn't take it all did he stay mm -hmm. did he go what would you do you know so and likewise somebody like beachy head woman sub-saharan small woman found um, near Eastbourne she lived between 200 and 250 AD but of sub-Saharan um, ethnicity but grew up in Eastbourne well how what was she doing there well Eastbourne had a port it had a town and it had a one of the South Saxon the forts that stretched along the Saxon shore forts that stretched along from, from Norfolk down through to Hampshire, number obviously in Kent, of course. Um, and the uh, one for um, Anderida um, is just there. So you've got a garrison, garrisoned by auxiliaries from Spain. You've got a city, you've got a trading port, and you've got this Roman garrison. And we've got our unknown black girl. So how does she fit in? we could split the class into three and say okay so you're the you're the town and you're the port and you're the garrison now i want you to really go out and find everything that you can about a roman port a roman town or a roman garrison what was life like what were they eating what were they wearing blah 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 blah, blah. how might she fit in and then get them to uh, suggest how the girl might have fitted into their community does she belong with you in the garrison, with you in the port, is she a trader's daughter? Is she a merchant? Is she a slave of a, of a uh, um, officer in the garrison? But really get them involved in that sort of inquiry. And we have her face. She's one of the people who's been reconstructed. So we know what she looks like. And that pulls the children in because then they know she was a real person. And history is all about real people and real events. And the more we can help them understand that, the more they're going to want to know. That's wonderful. And I think what you're really encouraging us to do there, and, it, and Paul was doing the same, is to 
think like historians as well and I think sometimes the idea of subject disciplines can get a bit lost in primary education the idea that this is how historians work they want to find out more and here's how and and this is what inquiry and interpretation looks like I think those kind of those Mm -hmm. skills are really important that you know I'm, I'm a big fan of real sort of knowledge rich curriculum but I think mm. within that the, the the knowledge of how a historian knows this stuff and how they go about making their sort of decisions and the fact that historians sometimes disagree on the past and, and perspectives about the past and we've yeah. seen that a lot haven't we with some of the historical figures being knowledge in itself is of no use unless we understand why it's important mm. so finally would you each just give us some very brief advice for any history leads who are looking to develop their curriculums be aware that this area is complicated and potentially contentious. You need to take that into account if you're a subject leader. You need to be careful about how you approach this. Be accurate and objective. Avoid moral conclusions. Remember why it's important and how you want to reflect this multiplicity of voices. And above all, develop your own subject knowledge because it's only in knowing these stories that you can bring them to children. Yeah, just before we go, I think, you know, we could finish this discussion and people say, well, it's all very, very well, um, you know, but how am I going to get resources for it? But I just really emphasise the importance of going back to the resource we created last year, which has got a a substantial resource list to to help people. But uh, there are, you know, beyond that, there there are resources you can get. For example, if you look at the... National Archives have got a, a number of repositories for things like websites like the, the Coming Here project. Uh, it's got its own black history resources for, t- for schools. The Imperial War Museum, again, has got useful resources that you can get again on, online. Some publishers uh, are, are, are really good. Uh, Franklin Watts is, uh, is developing a number of black histories. So I keep spe- specifying black history at the moment, but uh, other resources Teaching as well. history from 100 objects. Yeah. That's, um, that's a really good site. Yeah, so lo- lots of opportunities to sort of develop your, your, your expertise uh, to, to, in, in many, many different ways here. And again, it's just a matter of going to those key, key resources and getting started. Wonderful. And if you contact the Historical Association, there are nerds like myself and Paul who will talk history all day long happily <laughs> with people. So, you know, if people are stuck and they're really looking for information, people such as ourselves are available always. Wonderful. Well, our thanks to Paul and Karen for all their advice today. We do highly recommend the Historical Association if you need some more support or advice. If you've enjoyed this episode, do please get in touch. We'll be releasing some more subject-specific episodes very soon. Take care and bye for now. Don't keep the deputy.